Okay, welcome to I Communicate. I am your host, Mark Altman, and as always, thrilled to be here with you to talk about emotionally intelligent communication. Is there a better topic than that? So I got to start out with a, a quick anecdote that's going to lead us into our topic of the show today. As I've said on the show many times, I am proudly will admit I see a therapist. I've seen a therapist for the last five years. Um, this therapist happens to be someone who's a formal trainer uh, in corporate America. So not only is she a therapist, but she actually understands the plight of training and coaching quite well as also. And I say that because, you know, we're in the business of at Mindset Go, our trainers, and we have a guest I'm going to introduce in a moment, but our trainers and coaches were basically all day, every day, helping other people through their challenges. So it's nice to have a sounding board and someone to take those challenges to. So I was talking to my therapist a couple of weeks ago, and I don't even remember the context of how this came up in conversation, but I said to my therapist, I said, you know, if I had a magic power, it would be to read people's minds. And without even breaking a pause, she said, geez, if I had a magic power, it would be to read people's hearts. And I thought, wow. I mean, it stopped me in my tracks because... I mean, if you Google read people's minds, you could have hundreds and thousands of articles come up instantly. Go Google read people's hearts. I did it. The only thing that comes up for read people's hearts really is Christian Bible concepts. But as far as like mainstream America, emotional intelligence, it doesn't really come up. And so I thought, what does read people's hearts really mean? And I've given it a lot of thought, and I've talked to a few mentors about it, and I really feel like I've started to piece together what read people's hearts mean. So today's show is about reading people's hearts as opposed to reading people's minds. And due to amazing fan demand, um, Joe Lyman, my partner in crime, um, an outstanding coach and trainer at Mindset Go, is back. And Joe, and let me just say, before Joe even opens his mouth, i got to say something. This guy's a warrior. I mean, he comes in the studio today, back injury. I mean, this guy could be playing football with his commitment and dedication. Joe, I love it, man. I'm so glad to have you back. Well, I'm very happy to be here. And I've forgotten all about the pain in my joy of being here. Oh, what a great answer. All right, Joe, so let's get right to it. Before we even get into reading people's hearts, we're in the problem-solving business. So why do people crave the ability to read people's minds? What's that all about? Well, I think part of it is, is we think if we could read people's minds, it's the mental equivalent of prescribing a pill for a physical ailment. Huh. So when we're sick, we don't want a physician to tell us that there's this, you know, long drawn out process. I, you know, when I hurt my back, I don't want somebody explaining to me about physical therapy. I want drugs, right? I want somebody to give me something that will fix the problem right now. And I think when we, when we say we could read, if we could read somebody's mind, then that would solve our need to understand where that individual is coming from. That would solve our predicament of how do we see what this person needs. I can tell you what to do. I can fix you if I can understand your need. And if I could read your mind, that would be easy. Well, so Joe, see, I knew I had the right guest today. So 
So here's the thing when you said the, the, the words that really keep coming to my mind as you're speaking is quick fix, right? And so let's play this out for a minute, Joe. So let's say you're, you're a good friend of mine, which you are. You're a friend of mine, okay? And let's say one day we're hanging out together and your body language, you know, your tone and stuff, it's just not the same. It seems like something's on your mind or bothering you. So now if I have the power to read your mind, I read your mind and you're upset with me. So what's interesting to me about the quick fix is now that I know I'm upset, you're upset with me, then what? Because even if I can read your mind, um, do I want to have a conversation with you about it? Will I consider you high maintenance and walking on, do I have to walk on eggshells around you now that I read? Do you see what I'm saying? So even if you get that quick fix, do you really want to know what's on the other person's mind? Because then you have to deal with it, right? Well, and, and that's the, the crux of the matter, and that's the key to it, right? So we now know what's wrong, but do we have the, the, the desire to correct it, particularly if it means that the answer to, what, to, the, to the question involves self-awareness and self-change? Yeah, and, and so do we really want to know the answers? And then not only does it talk about self-awareness and self-change, but it also creates confidence issues because, you know, in the movie What Women Want with Mel Gibson, I think Helen Hunt, if you're at a table with a woman and you can read their mind and the woman doesn't want to be with you anymore, boy, that could really, like, if you really knew that out of the gate, that could affect your confidence, right? And, and it's interesting. I think that's, a, that's a, a good reference because the idea of, you know, in that movie, he literally can read their minds. But it turns out that that's not the power that he thinks that it is. And it turns out that what really allows him to shift results isn't knowing what they want, it's changing what he does. And I think that's the lesson that he learns in the end, is that it's, it's, it's always, it always comes back to self-awareness, self-change. Yeah, I love it. So let's segue to reading people's hearts. And so this is what I want to throw out there to start a conversation, Joe. So when I teach uh, assertive communication, courageous conversations, one of the foundational principles, and you're going to know exactly as I say it what I'm talking about, is there's three ways you can understand someone's intent, okay? The first way is if they disappoint you, don't meet your expectations, let you down in some way, shape, or form, you can draw three conclusions. Conclusion number one is um, they had negative intent. Conclusion number two is, and negative intent, let me expand on that. Negative intent means making it about you. Well, you know, they don't care about what I asked anyway, and they don't want to do what I want anyway, and they're just, they're just inconsiderate, rude, or insensitive. That's what I mean about negative intentions. Sure. So that's option one. Option two, which so many people preach, is positive intentions. Go glass half full. Oh, it wasn't about me. You know, they're having a bad day. They're overwhelmed. They're burnt out. Uh, maybe they just had a bad interaction. That's two. But what we teach at Mindset Go is we want you to do option three, which is to be curious. And be curious means you can't assume intent either way. If you go in the positive direction, you may be missing something really valuable. Because if I sit there and say, 
Joe, Joe's upset. It's not really about me. It may be about me. So if I just default to the positive, you could be missing something. So here's the lead in, Joe. We teach at Mindset Go so much about external curiosity and internal curiosity. And what I think reading people's hearts is about is about internal curiosity in trying to understand people's motives and intentions, trying to understand where the behavior stemmed from. Okay, so instead of, you know, I've sent you three emails for you to do something for me and you don't respond, instead of saying, well, that's insensitive and inconsiderate and they obviously don't respect what I need, I wonder why. I wonder why they're not. What's driving that behavior? What are the motives and intentions? So that's my feeling, Joe, about uh, the first step in reading people's hearts, internal curiosity to understand people's motives and intentions. And I, I think that's, that's the key, first of all, because it, it starts with desire, right? Your desire isn't to just resolve the situation. Your desire isn't to ignore the situation. Your desire is to explore the situation. And that's the curiosity that drives that. So without that, the, the steps that follow are limited to the two that you suggested. Either it's, <coughs> excuse me, you make it about yourself or you say, well, it's okay, it's about them and I don't have to worry about it. But both of those are so limiting in terms of what they allow you for options to proceed and how you get to a good place for all the people involved. Yeah, Joe, and it's interesting. You use the term limiting options. And what strikes me, and I don't know why this has come about, but we know the expression, people who make things black and white. And in my experience, so many people, when they're evaluating their options, often only see two options. When I find there's almost always three options. And the best example to illustrate that is you can handle things three ways, assertively, aggressively, or passively. You could also be passive-aggressive for anybody who's sitting there saying, I forgot that. But let's take the core three for the moment. So if you and I have an interaction, and every time we, well, when I say every time, let's say how about the last three times we've spoken, you've, I've interpreted that you've become kind of rude and sensitive to me when we talk. So the typical person will say, well, I'm going to tell them how I feel because I'm, they're not going to talk to me like that. I'm not going to let them talk to me like that. And so depending on how you communicate your hurt, your anger, your frustration, that can often be aggressive, right? Passive is, I don't want to deal with it. I'm not going to talk about it and then avoid it. And people forget that third option of assertive communication. And assertive is communicating your feelings, but in a respectful and kind way. And that's kind of the marriage of where you want to be, right? Well, exactly, because it takes the other person into consideration, whereas the other two uh, opportunities to respond are just about you, the speaker. And anytime that's the case, again, you're, you're just automatically limiting yourself and what's possible. And Joe, here's, here's what I want to talk about when we come back from the first break. I want you to think about this for a minute, our listeners as well. When we're trying to understand someone's motivation, intent, what caused something, if it's a deep-rooted issue, say it's 
because of their family culture growing up. Say it's, you know, from a past job, they had a boss that was very belligerent or tough. If we were to go that level of internal curiosity, are we, by being empathetic and reading people's hearts, is that soft leadership? You know, is that, you know, enabling by saying, oh, well, so we're supposed to be okay with this behavior because their family culture sucked or, you know, they didn't have role models or mentors or templates to be successful? Well, we come back for our next break. We're going to talk about just that. For Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. I'm here with the esteemed Joe Lyman, and uh, I'm Mark Altman. And Joe, I got to just tell you before we get back into this, sometimes people call me sir, and like I feel like it's so uncomfortable when people call me sir. Like I feel like I'm old. Like, do you feel like when people call you sir, does it make you feel old? Yes. Yeah, I tell them my dad was sir. I mean, if I was in England and I was being knighted like Sir Elton John. Like, I, I'd be okay I'd be with cool that. with that. I'd be really, yeah. I, mean, I would love that. Um, I'd be so, like, go queen. Right? So, okay. So, one of the things, before we get into the topic, as we went into break, I want to bring up is, Joe brought up the point when we were talking about there's usually three choices instead of two and assertive, aggressive, passive. He was talking about how people tend to limit their thought process and their options. And one of the points I made when Joe and I were in the break, and I want Joe to speak to is, it's almost like the hockey analogy, right? Guy punches you, and then you punch back, but you get the penalty. Like, you're the one caught. But you feel entitled to punch back because you got punched, so it doesn't feel fair. In conflict and in relationships, when you feel wronged by somebody or someone hasn't met your expectations, the third choice of being assertive even if you recognize that you had that option, you were mindful of it, you may feel like I don't have to use that option because I was wronged. And there's an entitlement there, Joe. There absolutely is. And the idea is that there are three ways to look at something. One is impersonal, but that's cold and distant and doesn't involve human kindness. The other one is to take things personally but that's when you start to discount the other in the communication, right? You hurt me first, so now I can respond however I choose to. But there's a third option that's available to people, and this is to see things in a non-personal way. And when I say non-personal, I mean recognizing that people act the way they feel. So when somebody lashes out, it's not because they're in a happy place, it's because mm. They're in a very dark place. And it's not your job to fix anybody, nor are we able to, but it's your job to recognize that it's, that people don't get angry with you because of you. You know, in customer service training, we explain this to customer service people. The customer that's screaming in your face wouldn't even know your name if you weren't wearing a name tag. <laughs> that's great. It's not personal. Yeah. It, but we choose, and I want to be very clear on this, we make a conscious, intentional choice to take things personally that we do not have to. So great, great example, Joe. So if, if, if when you're reading people's hearts and you're understanding their intentions and motivations, if you are self-aware enough in that moment to even be able to theorize the potential root reasons that a person may be acting the way they are, which is a huge stretch for a lot of people, because this would require, first of all, Joe just wronged me. 
Now I have to articulate, first of all, I have to recognize there's a change in my mood, my energy, my emotion. Okay, so I'm not happy. And I'm not happy because of what Joe did, quote unquote, right? That's what I'm going to tell myself often in that moment. And it, it doesn't, it's not accurate in almost all cases like Joe just alluded to. So in that moment, let's say I go over, listen everybody to the hills you have to climb in emotional intelligence. First, you have to recognize you're upset. Then you have to recognize why you're upset. Then you have to recognize it's not about me. Don't personalize it. Let's assume you get through those three steps, which are huge, right? It sounds so easy when I just say them like that. Now, you've passed those three steps. Now you're on step four. You're reading people's hearts. I wonder what that was all about. Why would they do that? What would motivate that behavior? What would cause someone to do something like that? So let's assume you did that well, Joe. Now you're on step four. Now you get to step five, which is what are the possibilities? And Joe, the possibilities that drive people's behaviors are endless, right? Absolutely. But I want to talk about specifically family culture and previous company culture and existing company culture. All three of those would be high on my list as potential contributors to what would drive people's behavior. Well, you're spot on. There's a quote from uh, W. Edwards Deming, the, the, the fabulous gentleman who created the, 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 the uh, community of quality. And anything related to quality in manufacturing and in the business world is a result of Deming's teachings. And he said that a bad system will defeat a good man every single hmm. time. And this is, I mean, and, and what you've just described, and part of the awareness that you want to develop is that it isn't necessarily our job as, uh, as, a, as a participant in this conversation as to, to understand and cure the difficulty the individual is having, right? As you said, the, 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 the reasons are, are, are limitless. But it's our job to recognize that they're there, that for whatever reasons, and then as it relates directly to a leadership situation, you know, you used a term a little bit ago. You said, is this soft leadership? I would say it's leadership. Forget the soft. This is just what a good leader does, mm. is to recognize what about what in our culture, in the framework that this individual has found themselves in, where their performance is suffering or their situation is not what is clearly not what they would like it to be, is it's our job to self-reflect and to reflect on what are, what are the contributions our organization is making to this problem. So if we have a culture that drives people to distraction and we're the leader of that culture, it's our job to understand that and make necessary changes. Yeah, I, I love that, Joe. And so I want to build on what you just said. And I want to give an example, Joe. So let's take a situation. Joe's going to do some problem solving for our audience here. So let's take a situation where you've got a leader and a team member. The leader has spoken to a team member three times about a performance issue. And by the third time, the leader is in the mode of, they're not remembering it takes two to tango. They're not remembering what their role may be and why we're having a third conversation. It's about the employee doesn't care. The employee doesn't value work ethic, pride in their job, et cetera, et cetera. So now the leader goes into that conversation 
And if the leader in that conversation, even at a third conversation, is empathetic and tries to read their heart and what is motivating this behavior, why they're not doing what's being asked, what's soft about that? Like, I don't, I don't understand how that is concerned. Because we're still holding the person accountable in the conversation. We're not letting them off the hook, but we're reading their heart first. We're trying to empathize with what is causing this behavior. Isn't it, like you just said, isn't that great leadership? Why would that be construed as soft leadership? Because we've arrived at a point in our culture, in our culture, in the broader Western culture, when paying attention to emotions has only recently begun to be understood as a strength and not a weakness. I mean, how long did we hear companies tell employees, managers, uh, frontline employees, leave your emotions at the door, right? Don't bring your emotions into work. But from hmm. my perspective, when somebody says leave your emotions at the door, you've just told the people that work for you to leave their enthusiasm at the door, to leave their joy at the door, to leave their, their, their energy at the door, because those are all manifestations of our emotional situation. So when somebody says leave your emotions outside, you're telling them to leave outside all of the things that make them a vital contributor to your workforce. Well, and I'll say this, Joe, I agree with everything you said, and I'm going to tell you what's even worse if there's if it's possible to stymie someone's emotions, energy, and those. What's even worse is you're basically stopping feedback, you're stopping assertiveness and self-advocacy. So when you look around at the great resignation and you're like, why are people leaving? They don't feel fulfilled. They're not passionate about their job. They don't feel respected, appreciated, recognized, whatever. It starts there because if I don't feel like I can speak up for what I want to need and I need to suppress my emotions, I sure as heck don't want to work for you. No, and that's the short version of what we see happening everywhere today. I mean, they call it the great resignation. You can call it anything you want, but the number of people who leave a job is still more than 4 million people a month for the last six months. And when, you've, when we're seeing numbers like that, when you're in that situation, something has changed, something has shifted. And when you're standing there, you know, how was it that Buckley described it? Standing athwart um, saying, you know, saying stop to history, it doesn't work. Well, and by the way, Joe, you bring up a really interesting point. I'm going to digress for a moment because it relates. So many people are leaving their job, yet so many employers, despite all the additional labor on the market, it's still really hard to find people right now, which is really an odd dichotomy, right? Because you, you think, now I will say this, and I want to get your opinion on this, Joe. What's interesting to me about that is I think the reason for that's happening is because people are actually self-reflecting in this transition period more than they ever have. And they're trying to evaluate, what do I really want in my career? How do I really want to spend their time? And I think it's that. Well, I think we could do an entire show on what you're describing. And think about this for a moment. The, the Generation Z folks who came of age, so Generation Z is born roughly between 1995 and 2012. So these are folks that are coming into the workforce in large numbers at this moment. They came of age when corporations and businesses in 2007 and 2008 during the economic downturn were so fast 
to say, hey, there's been an economic crisis. Uh, 500 of you don't work here anymore. Hey, there's been an economic crisis. We need to lay off 75 people. And they saw that. And it has never once occurred to these people as they now mature, finish their education, and move into the workforce that they owe anything to an employer that brings them on. Not one thing. Because they watch their families, their friends' families, lose jobs, lose houses, lose livelihoods Mm. as a result of companies simply, you may argue that they were simply responding to economic necessity. But the bottom line is they saw that there was no loyalty from the organization to the employee. And now as they enter the workforce as employees, they have no concept whatsoever of loyalty to a company that will ditch them at the earliest possible moment of need. And frankly, I think they've simply accepted reality. They're not cold-hearted, ruthless people. They're just noticing that companies are no longer loyal to employees. Yeah, Joe, thanks. That's a phenomenal point. And uh, we'll be right back, everybody, for our next segment of I Communicate. For Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. And I have to challenge our listeners. I mean, you tell me where you can find a podcast or a radio show that's talking about reading people's hearts. I mean, we're really tackling the major issues going on in human in the human race, Joe, right? Damn Skippy. All right. Hey, we love Skippy. All right. So, Joe, you are someone that, you know, loves powerful quotes and expressions and things like that. And I read something somewhere the other day, and I've been teaching leaders this since, and it so fits into our conversation the other day. Now, keep in mind, Joe, this expression is an is a phrase that is supposed to depict why it makes sense to be thoughtful, to have internal curiosity, external curiosity. Ready for this? I'm, I'm going to be selfishly disappointed if you've heard this before. I'm just saying. The phrase is, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. Ooh. Uh, first of all, I haven't heard it before. And second of all, I think it is spot on. Right? The second I heard it, I'm like, oh, that's human relationship interaction to a T. Absolutely. Right? And so we talked earlier today um, a little bit about third three conversations. And I deal with this with leaders all the time. And I know, Joe, you do as well. You know, the reason why you may be having a third conversation is you diagnose the wrong problem. Right? And so, or you didn't even take the time to diagnose it, period, for that matter. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a key because there's a there's a phrase that goes along with that that I share with with uh, the participants when I'm talking about leadership, which is kind of like the the mechanical version of that. Ready, fire, aim. We know there's a problem. So we immediately do something. And then we check to see if what we did was actually the thing that was going to mm. fix the problem we were experiencing, because, you know, Getting something done is important, but it's it's exactly that. It's prescription without diagnosis. Yeah. So, all right. So, Joe, I want to get back to reading people's hearts, and I and I I know you had a really you have really powerful um, thoughts to share. So, you had mentioned to me previously that reading people's hearts is like reading a book, and I wanted you to expound on that a bit. So, some of our listeners may be familiar with a. Um, a method of book reading, and it's called SQ3R. And for years, it was taught in actually in elementary schools. 
and junior highs. And the premise behind it, each of those SQ3Rs, stands for survey, question, read, recite, review. And the premise was that you would survey the book. Let's say you're going to pick up a book and, and, and read it. You'd look first at the introduction, if it had one. You'd look at all the chapters and the chapter headings and the titles. You'd look if there were subheadings in each of the chapters that you were going to go through. And then you'd ask the question, what is it I might get out of this chapter? What is it that I'm looking to get out of this reading? And then after reading it, after going through and reading it, then you would recite to yourself, what is it that this chapter was trying to show me? What is it that I was able to glean from this chapter? And then review the entire process once again. And, and I think we can take the, the idea of SQ3R and implement it when we're talking about having a conversation with somebody. So it, it gets to what I call the three Ps, plan, prepare, and practice. So our plan is, hey, I'm going to have a conversation with Mark because it seems to me like the last few conversations we've been having didn't really go in the direction and end the way that I anticipated. And I'd like to learn a little bit more about it. And my question is, maybe there's something that I, and, and here's the key when we're talking about reading people's hearts, not asking the question, maybe there's something wrong with him that I need to know about, but totally turn that off and say, is there anything in this conversation, is there anything in this relationship that I'm doing that I'm missing how it's having a negative impact on the people, on the person that I'm speaking with? Yeah. And so, uh, wow, great stuff, Joe. And, and I think what's going through my head as I'm listening to you is the word accountability. And it's funny, Joe, like sometimes companies will call me up and say, Mark, you know, we need you to come in and work with our leadership team to be more accountable. And I always laugh. My response is, oh, I'm sure they're going to be really excited for that training. So I'm going to walk in. And so everybody, I'm here because you all need to be a little bit more accountable. <laughs> like that's going to go over really yeah. well. So my point is that in the, and I wrote it down as you were saying, you said instead of maybe there's something wrong with him or her that I need to know, it's is there anything in this relationship that I'm doing that's causing a negative impact? And accountability has to be two ways, right? When we hold someone accountable, it implies to me that it's a one-sided exchange. So if you're not coming into work on time repeatedly, I need to hold you accountable because you're not coming into work on time. Yet, why are you not coming into work on time? It's not that you don't know the rules. You know you're supposed to be on time for work. There may be something going on. Maybe, okay, maybe the way I'm treating you is causing you to be a little passive aggressive and show up late for work. Maybe you're showing up late for work because you feel, hey, I, I go to the end of the wall for these people. I work a long time. So if I need to show up for work late, then they can deal with it because I'm a really valuable employee to the company. So my point is, is that if you're being accountable, when you hold someone accountable, it's not, I'm perfect. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. You have to be held accountable. It's what Joe said, which is, what do I need to be accountable for in this relationship, in these exchanges? And what do they need to be accountable for? Well, and again, that's spot on. And asking the question, am I holding everyone accountable in the same way for being here timely? 
right? Do I say mm. that frontline employees must be on time, punch a clock, and yet executives or management or leaders or supervisors come in kind of willy-nilly whenever they'd like to, and no one seems to have a problem with that? And all too often, I, I see companies that don't deal with, I won't say they treat people differently, but they don't deal with minor infractions in the same way with frontline folks that they deal with, folks that are higher up in the, in the echelon. Well, the irony to what you're saying is one of the strategies I give leaders when they're faced with an unfair situation, like you're describing Someone wants more time off. Someone's not coming in on time. Someone wants to work more from home than in person. We see that all the time now, right? Is I actually teach leaders to use reverse empathy. So, Joe, tell me what you think of this strategy. Okay, seriously. Absolutely. So what I will coach leaders on is I will say, so if I'm going to role play this. So Joe's the person who is the only one on my team coming in late. So to Joe's earlier point, everybody's being treated fairly. So that's the premise, okay? Just so you know, that's the premise. So Joe's the one that's coming in late. Joe's the one that's asking for more work from home time than everybody else. And so I go to that conversation and I say, Joe, here's my challenge. My challenge is that we are a culture of fairness and inclusivity. It is really important to treat everybody the same way. Would you agree? And let's just say for the premise, they agree. Absolutely. Okay. And then I say, so here's my challenge. If I allow you to set precedence, such as working more from home, coming in late, then what do I tell the rest of the team? And if you have some advice for me, Joe, and how to handle that situation, I'm all ears. But until then, we have to treat everybody the same way. I think... That's an exceptionally good way to go. Are you just being nice to me? No, and I'm going to tell you why. Because my comment, if, you, if that were ha- to happen to me, and in fact, in a, in a similar manner, it actually did happen to me many years ago when I was working for an, directly for an organization. And they said to me, well, you know, uh, you've asked for four weeks of unpaid time off, which was my request. And they said, First of all, what if everybody did that? We have to treat everybody the same. And second of all, no one's ever asked that before. So my thought was, well, if no one has ever asked for it before, then it's clearly a one-off, <clears throat> excuse me, and we can work something out. But if, if I suddenly cause a tidal wave of people looking for a month of unpaid time off, then wouldn't it really be in the best interest of this organization to sit and chat with everybody that wanted that time off and develop an equitable plan so that we could continue to treat everybody fairly, exactly as you've described the situation right now? So I, and, but that means that I have to be thinking and curious and willing to compromise as well. And I, I love that it's a turnover to the employee because it should be a turnover to the employee. We, we expect people to communicate exactly as you say on a two-way street. And if, that's, if, if I'm just asking or demanding special treatment, that's not okay. If you're refusing because you've never acceded to a request like this before, that's not okay either. So what we, what we can do is say, okay, is this a one-off? Is there anybody else looking for what you're looking for? Is there anybody else looking for more time, uh, work, more work from home? Which, of course, nowadays that's become, you know, uh, companies still don't know what to do with people that want to work from home. 
you've got, not to pick on Generation Z once more, but you've got people that graduated college in March of 2020, May of 2020, were hired on a Zoom interview and have never been to the building where they worked before for two years, and now you'd like them to commute 90 minutes each way, and they're looking askance on that proposition. Uh, yeah, and, and so here's the other flip side of reading people's hearts, and we're going to finish the show with this today, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease our next segment. Here's the flip side. The flip side is when you're reading people's hearts, we talked about the term soft leadership or enabling before. When you're discerning people's motives and intentions, good news for everybody, sometimes they're not all that honorable. Like sometimes they're selfish. So this is not, hey, just give people the benefit of the doubt to try to understand their motives and intentions. And an example is, and we're going to talk about this coming out of the break, Joe. I'm working with a lot of companies on the challenge of, you know, so you're changing the policies, people are coming back to work. And of course, what most employees are saying is, why do I have to come back? I'm more productive. Gas prices are high. I don't want to commute. It's wear and tear. It creates to the burnout, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the employees are making these impassioned arguments that why they shouldn't. And what we're going to talk about is that is not, an ex in, in my opinion, okay, when you're trying to understand motives and intentions, to me, the expectation was set before the pandemic that you're supposed to go to work. Now, if if the company decides to change a policy and pull everybody together, kind of like Joe was alluding to, that's a different story. But when we come back, I'm going to talk about to the point that how do you see both sides of that argument? You know, how do you bridge the gap between I, I feel I'm more productive from home, I'm happier at home, and conjunction with the expectations always been to come to work. So for Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. I am your host, Mark Altman, and I'm here with uh, my esteemed colleague, Joe Lyman. And Joe, let's get right to it. You know, we talked heading into the break about this conundrum, of, you know, reading people's hearts. Are their motives unselfish or do they have negative intentions with their motives? It's not always clean. And we use the example of the uh, challenge of bringing people back to the office. And look, are people more productive working from home? In most cases, probably yes. Um, are there less distractions? I'm going to say it's iffy. And I'm not even talking about kids and family members. Let's be honest, people. If you're telling me there's less distraction, tell me from you're telling me your phone isn't buzzing every minute. You don't have sound distractions that are still dark because I'm a little skeptical that it's that. All right. So but possibly. So the question is, before you took this job, the expectation when you took this job pre pandemic, the expectation was you're coming to the office. Pandemic happens. You're working from home. So now when people are pulling you back to the workplace and saying, hey, that was the expectation all along, and people are being resistant. And I'm I'm encouraging our listeners here, don't read anything into this, because you may be assuming my opinion on this, and you may not be right. I'm simply making the point that ex I'm all about expectations and articulating them and being clear on them and agreeing on them. And Joe, I'll lead to you by saying, we were talking at the break, and I said, man, pre-pandemic, if employers said you could take Fridays only and work from home or have half days on Fridays, people would have been tickled pink. And now it feels like a loss 
it feels like a disappointment if that's all you have. Well, and and I think you've you've nailed it. And here's part of the problem. Pre-pandemic, employees in many instances were were literally begging employers to let them work from home for a day or two days a week. And employers, here's the real problem. Employers were so reluctant to see this develop that they just said it can't happen. And then 15 minutes later, COVID, and all of a sudden, it could happen. Mm. And employees felt that employers might have been a little bit one-sided and a little bit blinded to the possibilities. Um, I'm not saying employers were disingenuous. I'm saying they didn't open up to the possibilities. And suddenly, it was possible for me to work five days from home. And now they're saying, okay, now that I've proved this, let's keep doing it. And employers are like, we're going to need you to come back. But I think what employees sometimes miss is that it is possible to be very productive from home. Let's let's concede that right at the get-go. Yep. But at the same time, that's working on what exists in front of us right now. But that's not what keeps companies moving forward into the future. What keeps companies moving forward into the future is developing what's going to happen next in the workplace, developing what the needs of, of the folks in the workplace are going to be and how to meet them. And that happens on a different and significantly better degree when individuals are in person, face-to-face with each other. Well, and here's the challenge, Joe. You know, I'm not a fan of companies that have rules and policies just because. Um, Nor am I a fan of when organizations treat this issue in a parental fashion. That doesn't feel appropriate or right. And see, reading people's, this is why I wanted to finish with this today, reading people's hearts is about blending both sides, right? And so from the company's perspective, and to Joe's point, there's a lot of value in collaboration, a lot. There is a lot of value in interacting with humans in person together for lots of reasons. And the employees who don't want to come back to work may not see that value or they may not want to see that value because they're thinking about themselves and selfishly. But at the end of the day, to keep people engaged, appreciated, motivated, it's how do you understand an employee's needs? And we're not just talking about working from home, we're talking in general here. Absolutely. How do you understand, how do you read an employee's heart? How do you understand what's gonna make them feel motivated, recognized, appreciated, what's going to drive future actions from that employee. And at the same time, marry that with the culture you're trying to create at the company, with the policies that you have in place for reasons. It's it's blending that, right, Joe? Absolutely. And one of the things, and here's one of the reasons to come back and be face-to-face, right? And let's get into the science, <clears throat> excuse me, of how the brain works. Mirror neurons. If you're doing something that makes you happy, it turns on different parts of your brain. And what we know from functional MRIs is that if I'm sitting next to you and I'm experiencing what you're doing, the exact same part of my brain lights up the same way. It's called mirror neurons. It's part of what the the insular cortex does. This is what regulates emotion and keeps homeostasis so that we're in balance. But this is part of the, the, the physiology of being next to a person, 
like literally physically in the same room with them. They've done studies that show that if there are two people who are in, in a good mood and somebody who's in a bad mood walks in, says nothing, sits down next to them, that the mood in the other two people will begin to shift and worsen. Joe, can you imagine calling up an executive, like a C-suite executive, and this is how the conversation goes. The executive says, Joe, thanks for calling me back. We are having some issues with employee satisfaction and engagement. And listeners, listen to what I'm saying. And Joe says, yeah, you just need to do a better job activating their mirror neurons. <laughs> now, can you imagine the reaction Joe would get? And here's the point I'm trying to make. Sometimes some of the, solu- the, the easiest solutions, or the most obvious solutions, are the best ones. And so, yes, if Joe used that language, they'd probably hang up on him because they wouldn't know what the heck he's talking about. But he's right. You know, when those mirror neurons get activated and you're happy and they trigger other neuron neurons, then those people are more likely to take initiative, come up with ingenious ideas, be more productive in their work, et cetera, et cetera. So if you have a productivity, engagement, and satisfaction problem, and it's because people aren't happy, how do we get people happy? Like, it's not brain surgery. Like, how do we get people happy so those mirror neurons can get activated? Well, and and that's the key. Uh, To come back to Dr. Deming again, the the man who invented the idea that you have to measure things to make improvements in the process said that the most important elements in any organization cannot be measured. Mm. And one of those is the happiness of people. And I think think he was correct, but I also think that we now have uh, engagement surveys that can help shed light on things for us, that can help move us in a good direction, that can help us say, Uh, hey, what's important to you? What matters to you? And part of this is it's a new world for many organizations, right? If you look at the, the genesis of modern management, it wasn't how to make happier employees. It was how to build better robots. And I don't mean robots in the literal sense in in machines. I mean how to turn humans into better working automatons. And that was the function of management in the early days, going back to Frederick Taylor. But the process of management today has to be, how do we create happier employees? And if that sounds like soft leadership, well, then I would just point to the fact that under every set of circumstances, happier employees are more productive. So if greater productivity is relevant to an organization, they might want to rethink how they achieve that. Well, the irony is you've really pulled our show full circle because... I find it's very hard to, aside from surveys, it can be very hard to measure the happiness. But you know what's not hard to know is when they're not happy. Oh, yeah. So it's, isn't that interesting? It's so funny to know why people, it's so, so much easier to notice when people aren't happy than when they are. And that's back to reading people's hearts. It's where we started on the show today. If people aren't happy, read their heart, understand. And look, the last thing I want to share on the show before we sign off today is this. When people ask, what does mindset go do? What do Mark Altman and Joe Lyman and our other coaches do to help people? You know, the foundational answer I give now is we help make people emotionally intelligent communicators. And it's the marriage of emotional intelligence and conversational intelligence. So if you have challenges in your company related 
to reading people's hearts, understanding what's driving their intentions, their motives, how to make people happy, how to manage emotions for yourself and others, right? Call us, email us, info at mindsetgo.com. The number is 978-793-1159. And uh, Joe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Mark, as always, the pleasure is mine. And I want to tell you, I'm going to bring Joe back. When we get off the show today, we're going to do it. I already know the topic, Joe. You ready for this? Tell me. So we're going to tease the listeners when you come back. The topic is going to be thoughtfulness versus work, fun, and responsibilities. In other words, budgeting time for thoughtfulness when you have those competing against you. So that's what we're going to talk about when we come back. And Joe, I, I got I to, gotta, as our last topic today, I got to say this. You know I'm a big Star Wars guy. And tonight's a big night. But I'm DVR. Well, it's on, it's on Disney Plus, and I'm going to the Celtics game, so it's not going to watch it tonight. But Obi-Wan Kenobi is starting on Disney Plus tonight. And I got to tell you, I'm pretty... Talk about emotional intelligence. Star Wars is all about emotional intelligence. So Obi-Wan Kenobi, talk to me. There's there's no downside to watching Star Wars movies. If your children haven't seen them, they should watch them. If you haven't seen them all, even some that people will tell you you shouldn't have to watch, you should watch all of That's them. That's right. That's absolutely right. So, Joe, final parting shots. Thanks again for being on the show. Just a final thought about reading people's hearts before we uh, wrap up. The bottom line is... There is no pill, right? We started out by saying we want the pill to fix people. There is no pill. What there is is the opportunity to be curious, is the opportunity to try to understand what is motivating the people around you in your organization and help them achieve their goals. Because in the end, a, a, a leader recognizes that the goal of the leader isn't to be individually successful. The goal of the leader is to help people, other people, achieve their individual goals. Awesome. Joe, thanks again. For Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. Have an emotionally intelligent day. We'll see you next time.